The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Mr. John Authors. John, I know you've been in business for a while. A lot, I'm sure, you can yes. bring to the table as far as your experience with Bloomberg. But introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get involved? Interested in markets? What brought you yeah. to Bloomberg? And what are you doing currently? Okay, right. I'm, I'm actually these days an American citizen. But as you can probably hear, I'm a native from Britain. I have been a journalist. I've been a financial journalist since 1990, so basically straight out of uh, straight out of college. Uh, and I worked at the Financial Times for 29 years, and I'm now coming up for five years here at Bloomberg. And I think I started. I started my first stint of covering the. Uh, covering the uh, London stock market as it then was was in 1990 when we were just entering what in retrospect, is rather a quiet bear market. And when the world really was, we can now see quite a different place. It was uh, exciting if you could find out that some broker had downgraded some some stock. There was a lot of work to be done just to find out what was what kind of action was explaining the, uh, the moves of individual stocks. And it was very much uh, a bottom-up world at that point. And people paid the paid for the FT because we had page after page after page of uh, in tiny print every stock quoted in London with its price and PE ratio and price to book and so on, which at that point was remarkably a USP. People had to had to buy us to to get it, and they traded during the day with a piece of paper in front of them, which again is quite astonishing that it was that recent. I covered basically every market, every market crash or every every uh, serious incident in the markets, both positive and negative, since 1990. So uh, Black Monday and Soros, bet against the pound, Irrational Exuberance Day with Alan Greenspan, the whole of the dot-com bubble, the whole of what happened in 0708. I was the investment editor of the FT then. And I've been writing a daily newsletter for the last couple of years at the FT. And then that's what Bloomberg really wanted me to do. I, I write a daily newsletter on markets, which has uh, told the story of the pandemic and has since told the story of uh, inflation. And we're now getting on to the fight of uh, what exactly is going to be the cost of the fight 
against inflation, which we're learning more about with every uh, with every day that passes. But yeah, anyway, that's me. I'm I'm a journalist, and I've really been covering the markets for a very long time. If you look up, you you will find I've done a there's a couple of books by me which you can still get on Amazon that will explain all about or I will in which I attempted to explain why what happened in 2008 happened and why correlation got so high between lots of apparently different markets. I definitely want to expand on that but but given your years in the in the journalist side of things mm. and, and as you mentioned seeing all these tail events uh, and reporting on yes. them has the has the nature of the way media reports and and analyzes these events changed? Has it become more punditry based, more opinion based, more emotional, as opposed to how it may have been earlier in the nineties, where it was more analytical and dispassionate? Yes, I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, a large part of that is the growth of the internet; that everybody does have a voice. We are speaking on Twitter at this moment. So it becomes a much broader field. And as we all know, in particularly in politics, the noisier you are or the more extreme your point of view, the more people will notice and engage. I think I love a lot of CNBC coverage, but I think Fast Money or Jim Cramer is similarly uh, an example of uh, the kind of thing that will get people to look at you. It's not necessarily uh, an example of the kind of commentary or coverage that you might actually want to follow with your own money. I think the other thing, though, that it is fair to say is that the um, I, I do think coverage is a lot more intelligent now than it was 30 years ago, because it's no longer acceptable just to be bottom up, just to find out who is selling this, selling this stock or, or whatever. You do need to uh, add a lot more value because there is greater competition and because you can move much more swiftly. I think the other thing which is key to the way I've tried to do things is that there is an advantage to actually keeping your head straight, to, to being calm and trying to be detached. Again, I, I get feedback where people thank me for being calm or for being you know not sounding too scared about about things which you wouldn't have thought was a, a source of competitive advantage but i guess it is so you know the, those are the things that have helped and i i do think the degree of the analytics that are available to us the degree of the information you know i'm sitting in front of my bloomberg terminal in case i ever need to discuss it while we're uh, while we're talking the, the degree of information that's available to you at one click of a button or a mouse now compared to a few decades ago is is, is extraordinary and that does change the nature of the beast it, it, it puts much more of an emphasis uh, or need on uh, journalists to be smart and to be, and to show sorry one other critical point which has come with the the growth of the internet People tend not to trust you if you're in the mainstream media. So I once this is quite comical. I once got a letter when I was at the Financial Times pointing out a, a mistake. Uh, I think we said prices when we meant yields. Easy to happen. Human beings produce things. There will be mistakes from time to time. But the letter actually said, the Financial Times can't be wrong, can it? With a question mark. 
And I actually phoned up that reader and discovered he meant it seriously. He wasn't being sarcastic. It hadn't entered his head that we were capable of making a mistake. That's unhealthy, that people distrust the information they're getting that that much. I think at this point, we've gone too far in the other direction where the fact that I work for Bloomberg, you know, this very powerful data data business with an extreme influence, interest in people taking me seriously and believing I'm being honest. Somehow or other, that has taken us uh, a reason to distrust what I say, that, that, that there is a, an active belief that there must be something wrong with your point of view if you're from the mainstream media. That is an issue, uh, and it becomes very important to demonstrate that you can be trusted, that you should be trusted, and that you can be trusted. Not necessarily that you're always going to get it right, because nobody will, but that you are intellectually honest and trying to get it right. I do think there's a difference between also just Bloomberg's model versus you know, other financial media models. You know, other financial yes. media models you, know, are, are, you can argue more on the entertaining side because they're trying to get eyeballs, eardrums, because they're ad, it's, it's ad revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas... Bloomberg, you don't have the same focus on the ad revenue side because you've got the terminals. Correct, which is a very nice place to be. I mean, I do try to entertain people. You know, try not to make it like a visit to the dentist. You know, Matt Levine, similarly, uh, you know, uh, who many of the people listening, I, I, I imagine, will uh, read him every day. You know, it, it's not as though we're not trying to at least make this an enjoyable, interesting read. But yes, the, the the need to really be noticed and to you know feign outrage when it doesn't really exist. That I'm I'm glad to say thankfully due to the Bloomberg business model that that doesn't affect us. We're we're not under uh, any pressure to scream about something unless we think we really need to scream about it. Yeah, and, and to your point, it's unfortunate that people seemingly can't distinguish between the nuances or among the nuances in terms of how to think about trust. You know, yes. I've seen the same dynamic on social media. People would rather trust some anonymous, you know, FinTwit account on some news piece uh, that they're reporting than uh, somebody whose whole career is focused on providing accurate, actionable information. Correct. I, I, I mean, I'm, again, there are plenty of reasons, particularly in the world of politics, where you can see why people trust the mainstream media less than they used to. And particularly in the case of the dot-com bubble, much less so, in my opinion, in the case of 0708, the financial medium did get things wrong. The, 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 there was far too much hype around the dot-com bubble. You know, magazines like the in- Industry Standards coming into existence and becoming enormous you know, people got excited by that. I do think the 0708, if you look at the amount of uh, whether the press got saw how bad things were going to be is questionable. Certainly, I would. I thought I was asking the right questions and many others were as well. If you were following the press in 07, you would have known that there were some very, very worrying risks out there. But in general, you know, those two incidents left people you know, gave people reason to question how much they could trust what they were what they were reading. They 
didn't feel that they'd been adequately warned. So of these books that you've written, you mentioned this idea of, of uh, co-movement of asset classes yes. post GFC, right? So uh, lay out for the audience um, what that what that argument was. Well, I'm well, going to make these assumptions ultimately about QE and ZERP and everything. Well, about <laughs> well both before, it, it was uh, what we saw in the years before the GFC was people thinking they were diversifying, by moving into assets that had previously not been correlated with each other, but in fact making the same bet multiple times in different asset classes, with the result that they weren't protected in the slightest when the crash came in 07 and 08. So things like emerging markets, commodity futures, all of these were financialized, became much more of a big deal. Obviously, credit and structure credit. And so, you, and, and foreign exchange with the carry trade were basically all trades that were that amounted to much the same thing. So you had, uh, you know, this remarkable collapse of everything at once. When you had the uh, response, which is QE, which I am somewhat ambivalent about. I think it was probably necessary to hold the nose and do it in uh, in the in the first tranche and it was less justifiable with every further tranche that came with the advent of QE money is fungible and it will go where it can make the most return and so again you begin to if you look at indexes in any number of different geographies different asset classes you can pretty much tell where the how much liquidity is coming how much central banks and particularly the fed are trying to uh, to prime the pump so what we possibly have is a very major case of malinvestment of mispricing that because there's not been the uh, the normal price discovery that you might uh, expect for such a long for such a long period we have a, a large number of assets that are deeply mispriced. And we don't have, as a range of uh, investors, people who are qualified or who have the experience to deal with that. And the current issues for the regional banks in the US being one very nice example of that, that, that a lot of that is played through ETFs, which is another factor, incidentally, in the uh, the way correlations increase across asset classes is that you can bet from the top down and the, the tail can wag the dog. And there's at least some evidence that that has been happening with uh, with regional banks, that people perfectly reasonably sell the ETF with the result that you then get uh, pressure on, on individual stocks and it becomes a self-perpetuating loop. But that's that's ultimately, I guess, I guess my my story that that the provision of easy money followed by the uh, the financialization of a range of products to allow top down investing has has led ultimately to uh, yeah a, a situation where where there is a large amount of malinvestment that will have to be sorted out, and the great hope for the moment is that somehow or other we can muddle our way through without a major you can argue it's also made the markets less fun <laughs> right <I> mean, <laughs> no really and I, and I say that because look the, the reality is you know the the last decade really post qe3 the the entire cycle was dominated by just yes. you know, a few select large cap 
you know, stocks that were driven by market cap weighted passive yes. uh, indices, right? So the, the fangs, as we know, right? So yeah. it, it made it quite frustrating for, you know, stock pickers, for hedge funds. I mean, speaking about Bloomberg, you know, that Bloomberg cover that shows, you know, hedge fund perception as an arrow uh, straight up coming from the crotch versus, you know, the reality, right? Which is that it's not not as uh, and as real, right? Mm. So, but my, my point is that it's, it's, it's been a, uh, I'd argue, a very um, frustrating environment for active allocators because if everything's acting the same and the S&P yes. is the only game in town, you can't beat the S&P when that's the leader. You know, Peter Lynch, Fidelity style active mutual funds have had a horrible time. And interestingly, so have global macro hedge funds. There's just no the ability to 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 beat the market by spotting the next macro move doesn't doesn't help you very much if central banks keep pumping money and the macro keeps not moving the way you want it to. Uh, so yes, it's it's made life very hard for many people. You know, I'm a big fan of Charlie Ellis. The the, the notion of the losers game has intensified that that the people playing the game of trying to allocate assets you know it's, it's a smaller pool and the survivors who are still trying to win are ever better so um the game involves competing against uh, an ever smaller number of ever ever cleverer people which is difficult it's it's yeah it's a very it's a ve- it's been a very painful time for a lot of people in in asset management. So, so that actually dovetails nicely to the idea of uh, peak passive. I mean, I've had yeah. Robin Wigglesworth on a Twitter space not too long ago. I had yeah. Michael Green, right? Both of them talk quite a bit about uh, passive investing. Mm. That that idea of passive, uh, the peak in passive investing has been around for a while. Um, and it seems to yes. keep on getting higher and higher in the uh, flows. H- how much of this is is purely structural, just given the way that 401ks are set up and the availability of of funds versus, you know, if you can't beat them, join them as, a, as an investor mentality? A lot of it is very much structural. I'm mentioning Robin Wigglesworth. I sat next to him for about three years at the Financial Times, so I like to think I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I gave him his start covering passive investing. I remember happily telling him a lot about the, the growth of Dimensional and Vanguard and stuff. Yeah, it, there are certain things that really have given an impulse to passive, particularly in this country, that it's very difficult to beat. So, if there is a you know, a, a fiduciary standard that you've minimised your costs, then of course any sensible trustee is going to put their money in a, a very large index fund because. Nobody gets fired for putting money in an index fund. The same way that people used to say people nobody got fired for investing in IBM. I think also the because of the way the way the no, nature of uh, investing has shifted with the understanding with modern portfolio theory has also unintentionally given a very major boost to indexing to passive funds. In that. If you're viewing the market as in terms of an index, that index becomes ever more important. One of the ways I, I, I like to illustrate that is that when I started in the business, people would say they owned a stock or they didn't own a stock. Nowadays, they'll say they're overweight or underweight a stock. 
if you are in a fund that, and, and that leads to the very strange contradiction that, say, in a in Britain, if you've got a index fund in in Britain, you've obviously got huge amounts of BP and Shell in it, and if you if you uh, therefore go below benchmark and say have only two percent of your investment in uh, each of those companies, that means you want BP and Shell to do badly because you're betting on them to do badly, even though you actually hold those stocks, which is a very perverse ser- series of uh, incentives that people face when they uh, when they invest. So y- yes, there are, there are strong structural trends moving towards passive. What's happened in the last five or six years was that you you've had a long period in which you know the, the um you know the classic jack bogle version of uh, of vanguard was dominating inflows but for the last five six years we've had outflows from active into passive as well and what's most important is it's not just the influence on actual passive funds nominally self-proclaimed passive funds but it's also about the impact of benchmarks on supposedly active funds. So I don't know how many listeners are familiar with the, with the Martin Kramer's anti-petagisto, probably mispronounced his name, who um, a couple of academics who came up with research about 15, 16 years ago now with the concept of active share, where you look at any fund's portfolio in terms of how much it deviates from its benchmark. And if you use that as a basis, if you if you uh, look at assets as the at the active share of the total uh, amount of money that's been invested in large caps in the U.S., it's quite startling that the total amount of this, this, I'm quoting from a very interesting study I wrote up from uh, the, from Man from Man Institute. At one point before the GFC. Roughly fifty percent of the the money held in uh, in uh, U.S. investment funds was active. It differed from the main benchmarks. That's now down to thirty five percent. Roughly speaking, um, the amount that's basically driven by top down by indexes has increased from half of uh, the money. Uh, devoted to shares in this country to uh, to two thirds, and that's 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 a big deal, and it means that the the impact of uh, of of um, passive is perhaps even greater than it appears from the raw numbers. Lay off for the audience how, why that's a negative from an, an economic perspective. So, from my vantage point, okay, the, the, from you know from my, from my vantage point, the dilemma is very simple, right? I mean, there's a signaling aspect to stock price, and if if stocks are co- moving closer together. You don't really know what uh, the true fundamentals are because it's yeah. technical price movement, which causes a degree of obfuscation on the reality of, of what a company is doing. Yes, precisely. So you need the, the part of the idea of the stock market is that it, a very important part of it is that it encourages capital to go to where it could be best used and discourages it from going to places where it would be wasted. And it's very hard to argue that that is still happening if that much of the uh, the funds that are devoted to the stock market are 
allocated passively. It actually gets to the point where providing there are new funds coming in, if stocks get more overvalued, you have no choice but to give more of uh, incoming funds to those overvalued stocks that they, that they become that the index can become providing there is still money coming into the index funds that the index can become something that actually propels or inflates bubbles rewards the companies that are currently most richly valued now that's a yeah that that is a perverse outcome and arguably a dangerous one so one of the ideas behind peak passive is this notion that obviously you can't have the entire stock market managed passively because then there would be no price discovery at all. The market would seize up. That cannot happen uh, if we, unless we want to give up on capitalism. One very famous paper out of Bernstein referring to uh, passive investing as Marxism, which is an exaggeration, but there is a, there is a fair point there. That is what gives you the notion that we could at some point reach peak passive. I'm not sure myself that one one thing I do find, and this has been true for a long time since, you know, at least the last 20 years, conversations about passive have oscillated between two mathematical facts. And I'm not sure how interesting either of them is. One is you cannot possibly go to 100% passive owned. And the other is passive funds. While because they have lower fees, you can always be certain that the average passive fund will beat the average active fund. Both of those statements are true. I'm not sure either of them, and, and that gives you the heart of the dilemma of working out how to deal with the whole passive phenomenon. I'm not sure how useful either of them are. By the way, I'm, you confirmed that I'm not crazy because I had asked, I had Gene Epstein on one of these uh, spaces also, and I had brought up that point about. Uh, you know, passive, you can argue, is a form of socialism to an extent in terms of the influence on the economy. Uh, yeah. And you kind of alluded to that. So he seemed to be a little bit confused by the direction of it. But I think the way you explained it makes a lot of sense. Let me, uh, anybody yeah. again that wants to come up and ask questions, please make sure you click the bottom left mic request button. And uh, please make sure you follow John Authors as well. Let's go to. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Well, that's I, I. I can't say I disagree. I agreed with more or less everything you said just then. Um, yes, it's it's a really it's a really difficult issue, and, and you also go to the go to what I regard as somebody who's supposed I'm not being paid for advice per se, but I am being paid by Bloomberg, previously the FT, to offer general advice to people. I don't think it's a good idea in the in the broad sense for everybody to hold passive index funds. However, the base idea in the current in the current situation, I don't think there's any better advice to give people than to hold index funds. 
unless they're prepared to do an awful lot of work on their own. And that is a, a, a real collective action problem, which it, which it's very difficult to escape. I do think when you mention savings accounts, that's possibly where the opportunity to deal with this arises. And it's at this point that I start talking very boringly indeed, because uh, I did spend time writing about pensions at one point, that the, the, the notion of how how pensions are regulated needs to be altered in such a way that you begin to move back to something more like that mimics the uh, classic defined benefit plans, where it was much easier to invest for the very long term. So Canadian pension funds, as, as we know, are, you know, these remarkable institutions that buy, you know, that they will, the Caisse de Depot in Quebec actually not only not only funded the uh, the building of a new metro in in Montreal, they actually managed it and ran it themselves um, because they were that confident about their ability to do active investing. We need some way of finding finding a format for the uh, for long term investing such that uh, you can actually hold long-term investments in there. The kind of idea that I've knocked around is if you're making compulsory allocations at a very at a young age, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you should probably have a default that goes straight to some pretty highfalutin, risky, illiquid stuff. Because if you genuinely can wait 35, 40 years for your money, that's probably, if it's well managed, going to be where it can give you the most ultimate bang for the buck. As it stands at the moment, that's very difficult to achieve. We've had a long period. You said hedge funds seem to be the way to go. I, I would argue it's more private equity that because we discovered how painful it was when you had to mark stuff to market in 07 and 08, and because we got the idea that um, leverage that, that leverage was going to be more or less free forever. Private equity looked like an absolutely fantastic deal for a long time. That is an area that concerns me uh, in terms of where things could go really wrong over the next couple of years is what lies in wait once not only commercial property, but but Real estate, sorry, not real estate, commercial real estate, but also private equity. Once those start being marked to market, it's a little alarming to imagine what we might discover there. So that that's my concern about this, about the response to the GFC. I, I think is perhaps that there was overexcitement about private investments that rely on leverage. I think in the same way hedge funds did fantastically out of the dot-com bubble. So many hedge funds had bet on, you know, had bet against the tech stocks and had long positions in all kinds of value stocks that you actually had the average hedge funds, according to who you followed, actually made money in, in 2000 and 2001. And that's when you get the, the much the, the rise in the scale of hedge funds, the institutionalization of hedge funds, the uh, the loss of their edge because they had become so much bigger and more institutionalized 
comes in those years after the dot-com bust when everybody thinks hedge funds have the answer. And then, of course, in 0708, they conspicuously failed to do so much better than anybody else had done. Yes, tell me about it. Uh, okay, that that prompts another thought as, as, uh, as I've been asking about you know lessons I've learned. Like I, I had, in my early years at the Financial Times, I spent time writing about personal finance, which I don't, you know, which was absolutely not my idea of uh, an exciting time. I thought I was going to be, you know, Woodward and Bernstein and meeting people in underground car parks. Instead, I was writing about pensions and tax shelters and stuff. But one of the things that was very interesting uh, was you did get to see what the readership thought. And it was quite stunning that really very intelligent, sophisticated people, senior lawyers, surgeons, you know, heads of marketing at large companies came up with stunningly stupid ideas about what they should be investing in or obviously really didn't understand critical elements of, of what you were writing about, that that uh, you really can be a pretty smart, educated person and not have a clue about this. And that is a an issue for me. It's, it's one of the key things I have been wrestling with my, you know, my entire career is that, you know, I, I ultimately, when push comes to shove, I believe in free markets. I think they're like, um, you know, Winston Churchill famously said of democracy that it was the worst way of running a, a country apart from all the other ways that had ever been tried. And I feel much the same way about free markets, that they're a terrible way of allocating capital the only things that are worse are all the other ways that people have ever tried to allocate capital. So I believe in free markets and you know, take, take the libertarian perspective. But it's obvious that when it comes to helping people save for retirement, it is actually necessary to be quite uncomfortably paternalistic with them. Yes, people do actually want to know, want it to be as simple as look right, look left and cross when the when the light starts flashing and it cannot be made that simple but a, uh, and when you try to create products or introduce new regulations to make it easier for people to uh, channel their money into the stock market or, or, or other markets what tends to happen is that you create incentives that you hadn't expected that you move capital move markets in ways that you didn't intend that it, and that that is a very very difficult circle to square but you know, certainly you you can't just say it's not acceptable just to say here's the index stick your money in that and it's not acceptable you know i've read jeremy siegel's books and all the rest of it but you can't just say have all of your money in the stock market all the time because volatility does happen and you do want to retire at some point and start start taking your savings out so you know it's, it's you've put your finger on a very serious serious problem uh, and it's one that i've spent a large part of my career you know trying but failing to answer i i, I take that point yes it's very difficult to know how to uh how to address that given that there is a desire for simplicity and that's a perfectly reasonable natural human desire just make life 
as easy for me as I'm putting my savings away as as you can, please, isn't an unreasonable attitude for people to take. But it actually ends up with you come up with products that will look appealing and you have regulations that are designed to protect people and you end up without realizing it, encouraging everybody to go into the same thing. Uh, I, I, and there, there are a number of examples of that that kind of phenomenon over, over the years. I think the influence of uh, people didn't realize how much power they had given to the ratings agencies when they're making regulations about whether you could invest in investment grade debt or not pre-GFC. And that meant that there was uh, a lot of money to be made by hoodwinking their rating agencies into giving credit a higher rating than it deserved. Similarly, the, the spectacle of China, the, the world's second biggest country, desperately trying to persuade MSCI to, to uh, include it in an index because so much of uh, emerging market investing revolved around the MSCI index. You know, nobody ever intended to endow. MSCI one one private sector index provider with that kind of that kind of power, but it it, it happened. I guess I guess the other way of looking at it is that it's the uh, inertia is very powerful. That if you if you give people a default simple option, they will take it, and that will become very powerful, and that in turn be very dangerous yeah that, that by the way is uh, i've tried for a while to get richard Thaler on but that's sort of one of his main yes i think concepts behind nudge right as far as the kind of uh, yes. i think he called the paternal libertarianism i think was the term he used uh, in that book let's go to okay we'll be back after a quick break foodies unite with how you dish it's social media with a secret sauce food the world's first network for food enthusiasts how you dish connects foodies across the world share kitchen tips and recipe hacks discover hidden gem food joints and street food find foodies like you connect chat and organize meetups how you dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world so how do you dish download how you dish on the apple app store now Let's. I mean, starting with uh, with Powell and Lagarde, the thanks to the energy crisis, Europe started somewhat behind because that gave such a big one off hit to uh, hit to inflation. Having started later in the process, it probably does have to continue somewhat longer they 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 were out of sync entering um the tightening phase with the fed moving first and it makes sense that the ecb will be it will um carry on for for a little longer one of the points that gets quite interesting there is the effect it's having on the dollar against the euro that that the dollar bulged last year thanks in large part to the fed's getting as aggressive as it did before the other developed market central banks. And it now looks as though that's going to to go into reverse. I think the other point that's very interesting with regard to Europe and particularly Germany is their degree 
of exposure to China, that, that Europe has much more of a dilemma in dealing with China even than the US does. I haven't had the chance to, to examine the German factory orders in any detail yet, but I would imagine China has something to do with that. China it buys a lot of uh, manufactured goods from Germany. So that could be a sign that the uh, the rebound in China, the post-COVID zero rebound in China is not moving as fast as we wanted or expected. If that's the case, that's definitely worse for Europe than for the US and could therefore change some assumptions. I think when it comes to the banks themselves, there was a, a book a few years ago which referred to the global financial crisis as instead the North Atlantic financial crisis, which I think was quite a, a good way to look at it in, the, in that what really happened there was partly that a bunch of American financial institutions made any number of loans that they shouldn't have made, but also that they found a ready buyer for it in the uh, you know large and rather ungainly and over-regulated banks in Europe. So without the uh, enthusiastic flows of money coming from various lousy European banks, you wouldn't have had, as it wouldn't have been as lucrative to extend money to uh, to subprime lenders to subprime borrowers in the way that it was so there was you know there, there was a symbiotic relationship and the european banks having already consolidated and having got all this toxic waste on their balance sheets and having the problem of the uh, the poor construction of the euro actually took far longer to recover in any meaningful way from the the gfc than the US banks did. What we now have, however, is, and this this has surprised me, but it, it's turned very quickly. European banks do appear now to be in somewhat better shape, in part because they've just not been able to get themselves into as much trouble as they, as they were before. That they've been uh, that uh, they've been forced to join their horns, and and also because they're more tightly regulated. I, I, I don't recommend the model, but it means they are less likely to go bust. They're less likely to to crash. Meanwhile, in the case of the US, you know, there was massive consolidation in, back in the 1990s, but there are still far more banks in the US per, per population than anywhere else in the developed world. And that does mean that you have all these institutions that could become vulnerable just because they've um, made an interest rate mismatch, that they've they've made the wrong duration bets, and that's that's what we're seeing. So, very suddenly and very surprisingly, the U.S. the what were strengths of the U.S. system that that a lot of the banking system was in institutions that weren't too big to fail has now become a relative weakness. While Europe has a banking system that you certainly wouldn't want if you were hoping for a dynamic economy, but that probably at this point in time is less likely to uh, to explode, is that did, was that more or less clear? I'm 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 enjoying myself <laughs> sometimes giving you streams of consciousness, but was that sort of the point that you were you were 
uh, you were interested in? My stream of consciousness on uh, Twitter usually involves a lot of cursing. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I can understand uh, the last question and then we'll wrap up. In terms of de-dollarization, I am in general a skeptic on this. I do think it has been overhyped. And if you look at foreign exchange trading figures, uh, the dollar still really is as dominant as it's ever been uh, in terms of its share of transactions. The most recent BIS data, which I think I'm right in saying was only last year, there are still far more transactions involving British pounds than Chinese yuan, which surprised me, but it tells you something. So, you know, it's in terms of is there anything imminent? No, there really isn't. Uh, and the uh, the moves that have been made recently that have created the uh, the coverage, uh, uh, you know, the, these are small amounts, small amounts of uh, of trade flow involving relatively small economies, like you know Argentina or or, or whatever. I don't see it as being a clear, coherent threat to the sort of Bretton Woods dollar dollar domination, exorbitant privilege world that we've been in for you know fifty years. That said, nothing is forever. You know, as British people, we are aware that there used to be a different reserve currency across the world, uh, and uh, these things can change. I, I do see a weakening of the dollar in terms of its centrality to the system as being a natural consequence of the rather scary geopolitics we're seeing at the moment when you're getting some new version of the Cold War arising when there are different economic blocks emerging. The communist world wasn't part of Bretton Woods. It's now in a rather uncomfortable way. It has been, to a greater or lesser extent, part of the Bretton Woods dollar-dominated system for a long time. I think it is natural that among the many ways that they're trying to uh, declare greater independence from the US, I think it is natural that that you would see attempts to develop alternatives to the dollar. But in the case of China, it's very difficult to do that. There's the trilemma concept. It's very difficult to do that unless you're prepared to let capital flow freely both in and out. And I don't think they're ready yet to be able to do that. So is it an important subject that we should pay great attention to? Of course it is. The the you know, the fraying of the order and the, the the move towards a you know a bipolar or multipolar world and the rise of China. These are these are hugely important topics and the dollar will be a consequence uh, of how the, the global the global uh, landscape evolves. In terms of whether there is anything that really changes the needle, moves the needle now. In terms of the macro economy, in terms of financial markets, I, I, I am a skeptic on that. I, I don't buy that yet. No. Everybody here, please again make sure you follow John Authors. Uh, John, uh, what is what's the best way for people to to track your writings and see your uh, see your thoughts? Okay, if you you can follow me on Twitter at, at John Authors. I have the the privilege of a of a uh, of an unusual name, so it's at then J O H N A U T H E R S, uh, and you should find. 
you can get my daily newsletter free if you don't it, by email. So if you go to me on Twitter, you will should find uh, a pinned tweet which will give you details of how you can sign up to get me in your news bo- in your uh, inbox every every morning of the of the working week. Uh, my my newsletter is called Points of Return. If you've got if you already have a subscription to Bloomberg, look for my name and you should be able to find it. Shouldn't take you too long to to find a way to subscribe to it there. Thank you, everybody, for joining. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.